All right, guys, welcome back. This is Faye. And this is Ben Young. And this is Triogs over coffee. coffee. Don't worry, I'm not replacing Nick. I'm not an obstetrician. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, Ben is from his very own ophthalmology podcast called Eyes for Ears. And he and his partner, Amanda, on that podcast recorded a amazing episode regarding negotiating your very first contract for your first job. After we finished recording it, we realized that it really wasn't specific at all to ophthalmology, which is you know what my podcast is about. But we figured it'd be a good idea to share it with this audience too. So without further ado, we wanted to present to you Contract negotiations with Heidi Mason JD, an employment lawyer. A real employment lawyer. An actual employment <laughs> lawyer. <laughs> Hello, welcome to Eyes for Ears, your ophthalmology OCAPS and Board of View podcast. We're your hosts, Ben Young. And Amanda Redfern. Remember, this podcast is for medical education purposes only. Not to diagnose anything weird, but that won't be an issue with this episode because then what are we doing? Yeah, we're doing something different this week. That is very scary to me. Amanda and I took our written boards recently, and I did not study at all for this question, but it's apparently, Amanda tells me, something I need to know about that is very important, which is how to negotiate your contract or your work or your maybe your first job or jobs in general. Amanda, Thankfully, you've found someone who can help us answer these difficult questions. Who is that? So I am excited to introduce Heidi Mason, who is an employment lawyer. She graduated from Portland State University with degrees in human resources and general management. She worked for a few years as an HR manager before going to Lewis and Clark College for law school. And then afterwards, she worked as an employment lawyer for a local firm, and then she founded her own law firm and is a partner there now at Inova. Welcome to the show, Heidi. Thank you very much. Hi, everybody. Hey, thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, thank you so much. I do uh, want to say that we have no financial relationships to disclose. However, she is my sister. You guys sound really similar. And I would love for her to pay me. (laughs) We do. (laughs) I mean, if you would like to pay us, we would accept it. But um, as of this time, apparently there is no financial relationship to to disclose. Um, Mandy, I am billing you for this time, just so you know. Okay, we got to get moving then. uh, (laughs) You're too expensive for me. I'm just a fellow. That's okay, because I do accept payment in the form of babysitting. Uh, I volunteer Ben as tribute. Okay. I'm not. Okay. So let's, uh, the general structure we're going to ask things is we're going to ask, uh, you know, first some general questions and then some more specifics about offer letters, negotiations, and, you know, other details that maybe you, just like I, would not have thought about when looking for a new job and looking at your contract. So, um, Amanda, do you want to take it away to begin? Yeah. So this first question comes from, I think, we're generally told you definitely need to hire a lawyer when you get your first contract, but no one actually tells us who, what, what, what does that entail? So first question for you, Heidi, is who really should hire a lawyer to review their contract and why? Awesome. Okay. So I'm going to do the most lawyery thing ever and start with a legal disclaimer. 
I am a lawyer. I am not anybody else's lawyer who's listening to this podcast. This is not legal advice. If you need legal advice, you should hire a lawyer. And I'm about to tell you how to go about to do that. So who should hire a lawyer? It's really up to you and your comfort level. If you feel very comfortable entering into a long-term relationship with your firm or uh, this other employer or a hospital, whoever it is that you're going to enter into this relationship with, and there's a lot of trust, um, you have a good working relationship, and, and you think it's fine to just have conversations, talk about what your arrangement is going to be, and go forward, and you're really not worried at all about what happens if everything falls apart. Do you really need to have a lawyer? Not necessarily. It's really up to you. Now, if you don't hire a lawyer to kind of look at everything, guide you through the process, then you're basically taking that risk that, okay, well, what if I put my faith in this other party and and they screw me over, then what? Yeah, that could be a problem. So it's really up to you. Do you have to hire one? No. Is it a good idea to hire one? If you're feeling uncomfortable, go for it because that lawyer can help guide you through the process, protect you from the risks that you might not really see up front and and help you start this long-term relationship on a, on the right foot. So when is the best time to start looking for one? And is there like should I look for a specific type of lawyer or can a general one do that for me? Sure. Um, There's no specific time that you have to uh, get started with looking for a lawyer. You should have a general understanding that when you go to hire a lawyer, the first thing they're going to do is do a conflicts check. They're going to make sure they don't have a conflict of interest. For example, they don't already work for the entity that you're trying to uh, enter this relationship with. So they're going to do that first. And that usually will take maybe a day-ish Maybe for the busier or larger firms, it might take a little bit longer. And then they can tell you, okay, can I represent you or not? Then yes, if they can, they'll give you an engagement letter. And then they might ask you for some money up front or sometimes they don't. And then you're started. You would then talk to that lawyer either about the contract you've gotten or the offer letter you've gotten or where you are in the process right now, you don't have a contract, you don't have any offers, but you just want to form this relationship because you think one is coming and and you want to get that person on board because you just want to be prepared. Any of those are fine. Lawyers are really used to having clients come to them at like any point in the spectrum, even after the contract has already been given to the client. They've already gotten the contract and the timeline to sign it was a month ago. And now they're coming to the lawyer saying, well, what can I do? That happens. So you don't necessarily have to be right on top of it, but we appreciate as lawyers if you come to us a little bit sooner than that. We know the feeling. There are parallels. Yeah, that's that's true. Mm -hmm. At what point, I mean, is it a private conversation or when does it become private or how does that work? So when you first go in and have that initial consultation with the lawyer. There is no attorney-client relationship at that point in time. You're just having your consult, you're trying to decide if you want to form this relationship with this lawyer or not, and they haven't agreed to represent you. At that point in time, nothing is privileged per se. 
as in if there was some sort of litigation down the line, you wouldn't be able to say, well, that's attorney client privilege. You can't get into that. Uh, it's not, they're not your, they're not your attorney, but it is confidential. What you tell that lawyer, even though that lawyer doesn't represent you at that point in time, that lawyer can't just share that with the world. Or more importantly, they can't just share that with the entity that you're about to enter into negotiations with. So let's pretend that you go and you call around for a few lawyers and you start talking to one and they say, oh, I've got to do a conflicts check. And then they come back to you and say, oh, I'm sorry, I can't represent you because I actually represent the hospital that you're negotiating against. And then you're thinking, oh no, now the hospital's going to know that I did this. No, that attorney can't go and disclose your information, even though they don't represent you yet, it's still confidential. And just so we have a general idea for that initial consultation, just to get to know the lawyer, see if you want to hire them. Is that typically like, is there typically a fee with that? Or is, is, is the norm for that to be not be billed? And then what is a typical fee then if you hire a lawyer for them to review a contract? I think the most typical is yes, mm -hmm. there's a fee. Generally speaking, uh, a lot of lawyers will charge a reduced fee for that initial uh, contact. And in Oregon, at least, if you go through the Oregon State Bar, they have a program where attorneys, they're generally newer attorneys who are trying to build a book of business, they will agree to do initial consults at a reduced rate. I think the last time I saw it, it was $45, something like that. Uh, that might have been a few years ago. And so uh, that might be a good way to do it. But that every firm is a little bit different. Like I don't actually charge for my initial consults because I have a very specific client base. I generally know kind of where things are going and it doesn't take a whole lot of time. And I just don't like charging for initial consults. So, but that's not the norm. Uh, you should expect that if you are going to go in and do an initial consult, that lawyer would like to be paid for their time. And then how much over the course of the review or process? Great question. It varies widely. So lawyers charge different rates depending on their specialties and how long they've been practicing. If you're hiring a business attorney in the Portland metro area, you could expect that rate to be somewhere around Oh, two twenty-five to three hundred and fifty dollars an hour, mm -hmm. somewhere in that range. If you're outside of the Portland metro area, it would be generally a little bit less. But if you go to a specialty uh, attorney, so let's say an employment attorney or an employment attorney who specifically caters to the medical field, right now you're looking at a higher rate probably something in the realm of at the low end 275 an hour at the high end maybe 450 mm -hmm. an hour that's definitely something you should talk about with that attorney you know what are your rates and is there somebody else in your office that might be able to help with the work that has a lower rate uh, because each attorney has a different rate assigned to them so you could have a partner level attorney who really specializes in a certain area that has a high rate like 450 an hour but that partner has an associate in their firm that can do a lot of the legwork with the drafting and that 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 person's rate is much lower, maybe 250, 225. And then you can maximize like the benefits of both sides. How many sides. hours does this take? 
Just trying to do the math here. <laughs> Depends on the length of the contract. So generally speaking, let's say all you want your lawyer to do is to read the contract and tell you what it says so that you can decide, okay, is this what I thought I was getting when I was uh, having the conversations? <clears throat> then it's just document review, right? If you have a three-page contract, then it's probably gonna take maybe a half an hour to go through it, make sure that it matches what you've told your lawyer it's supposed to say, and then for your lawyer to get back to you and uh, talk to you about, oh, and here are a couple of red flags that you should know about, and that's it. But let's say you actually need a little more service than that. Uh, let's say you have a 20-page contract. It's full of legalese, and there are quite a few things in there that you didn't talk about with your soon-to-be employer. All right, there's non-compete in there, there are other restrictions, there's confidentiality, there's a non-disparagement, and all of these other terms that you weren't expecting to see, and now you need your lawyer to go through and explain what all those things mean to you. It's a lot longer, it's a 20-page contract, it's gonna take them at least a couple hours to read anyway. The best way to kind of estimate is if you're talking about uh, a first contract, and you want somebody to help you negotiate it, somebody to help you get what you want to the maximum extent possible, to represent your interests, and, and help you come up with a negotiation strategy. All of that, I'd say you should estimate maybe 10 hours. You know, you, you mentioned different rates in different areas, you know, even just in, within Oregon. So where should I look for a contract lawyer? Like, do they have to be someone that's local to me, like within my city or even within my state? Is there, like, you know, can I hire you? Like, you know, the, mm -hmm. like, who, um, how, like, where should we look for a lawyer? So lawyers kind of like doctors, right? You've mm -hmm. got to be licensed and you can only practice in the state mm -hmm. in which you're licensed. So if you're going to be working in Oregon, you want an Oregon licensed attorney. If you're going to be working in Maine, you want a Maine licensed attorney. That attorney might not necessarily live in Oregon or Maine, as long as they're barred there, they have a license to practice there, that's okay. Um, but where should you look? It depends on how, how much contact you want to have with that attorney. Do you want somebody, you know, imagine this is after COVID times, do you want somebody that you can meet face to face and, and, and talk about things and form that kind of relationship? Then you want somebody that's a little more local. Or do you want somebody who is right at the heart of the location of where you're going to be working because that person is more likely to be familiar with the players and, and mm -hmm. the market in that area um, than go local to where you will be working? Gotcha. Are a lot of lawyers doing virtual visits now with COVID? Probably. I, I would hope so. <laughs> I really don't know. Yeah. Are, are you? I'm just curious. Are you doing a lot of virtual visits or... I actually, uh, for the most part, represent businesses. I see. And so for my clients, I do most of my work over the phone anyway and email. Gotcha. Just to clarify, what type of lawyer are we looking for? Like which lawyers, I mean, like in medicine and how we have all these specialties and then some specialties of some specialties, like uh -huh. what are we looking for again? You are looking for an, an employment lawyer. So a contract lawyer um, in our terms, typically means a business attorney, hmm. somebody who looks at business contracts 
from the perspective of the business for the benefit of the business. What you want is an employment lawyer, somebody who specializes in employment laws. Their job is to make sure that the employment agreement that you're given, one, complies with the employment laws of your state, right? And then two, matches your expectations for your employment relationship. And then if you can find somebody on top of that, that is an employment lawyer that specializes in the area of medical employment agreements and, and the practice of medicine, that's even better. That's icing on the cake because then they'll understand your industry so much better. Nice. What are we looking for in our lawyer? Like, are there qualities or what do you recommend when we're choosing one? I recommend you find somebody that you are comfortable with. So it's kind of like looking for a doctor, right? If if you don't have the kind of relationship with your doctor where you feel comfortable sharing your drug use and risky sexual behaviors, you need a different doctor because your doctor needs to know about that mm -hmm. if they're going to be treating you. It's the same with your lawyer. You need somebody that you can trust, that you can share things with that you otherwise wouldn't share with other people. So if you have a situation like uh, terrible gambling addiction and you're $200,000 in debt to the mob and you need this contract like right now and you need, you need an upfront payment so that you can make your loan payment, your lawyer needs to know that, right? It's not very flattering about you, but don't worry. At that point, it's privileged anyway. Your lawyer's not telling anybody. And what they're going to do is then try to negotiate with the other side to maybe get some sort of hiring bonus or something to meet your interests. So that's number one. You want somebody you can trust. Number two, you really want somebody who's going to be responsive. So, you know, lawyers, they legitimately have a bad reputation for not being super responsive sometimes. Like you'll call, you'll get the secretary, they don't call you back for two days. And that's actually pretty normal in the industry. I don't like it, that's not the way I practice, but it, it is a fair criticism of, of my profession. So if you can, find a lawyer that really is responsive, that calls you back hopefully within the same day, or at least sends you a text or an email to say, hey, I've got a few things, a few meetings today, I can get back to you tomorrow, and, and is pretty proactive in that communication. I think that might be the hardest thing for you to find that it's, it's really kind of a challenge to get that kind of responsiveness. But if you can find it, that's great. And then you definitely want to make sure that your lawyer is competent in their area of the law. So find an employment lawyer. If you can't find an employment lawyer, a business attorney will do. And they're still they're still a lawyer. They're still familiar with contracts. They might not be familiar with employment law but they'll, they'll still be able to help out. You don't want a family law attorney. You don't want a, a public defender, right? Those are just completely different areas of the law. Yeah. And they're going to have to do a lot of research to competently advise you. And more research means more time, which means more cost. Hmm. So it's kind of like how you don't want a podiatrist doing your cataract surgery. Not ideal. No, could they potentially do it? I mean, no, that's that's the I think legally they can if they're licensed. I think I don't know. We'll have to, we'll have to look so into that another. It's episode. just not ideal. Yeah. Agreed.
Well, that's super helpful to know. I mean, I think I I think I did flub what your title even was. I think I called you a contract lawyer before. So thank you for uh, <laughs> defining these subspecialties. It'd be like someone calling me a neuro ophthalmologist, which, which so thank you for. And um, you so, still have um, time to become a neuro ophthalmologist. So, yeah, you know, I should talk <laughs> to you later about that. I've actually been kind of thinking about um, another fellowship, but we should move on to offer letters and contracts. Um, what's the difference between them? You can't leave me hanging like that. But I okay. know, I know, I know, I know. Okay, he's just gonna. All right, so what's the difference between an offer letter and a contract? An offer letter is that first piece of paper you get saying, we picked you out of all the candidates that we had to choose from. You are our pick. We want to offer you a job. And that's what that letter is. Is it okay to get excited about that one? You should be very (laughs) excited about an offer letter. You won. You went through all this work. You applied. You networked. You had interviews. And they thought you were the best. You should celebrate. Okay. Just, just putting that out there because for me, I didn't know. I I just always assume nothing, nothing really means anything until there is some sort of contract. And then from there, I didn't know what that means. So I, do, I was like... So I guess is this like we're dating or I don't know what it means. <laughs> yeah. Is this, is this our that's a good ring? that's a good comparison. Yeah. So yeah, so you could treat an offer letter like your crush just asked you out on a date. Uh-huh. Now you haven't gone on the date yet. Oh. Right? You're just yeah, scheduling just... the date. But they picked you <laughs> and they asked you out. Okay. I would I would brag on Facebook if, if that happened. So is there anything legally binding about an offer letter or can they go back on it? Is there any like ramification? Yeah. Or can we like <laughs> who can ghost in this case? Uh, either, either side can, can generally ghost in this case. Oh. Uh, so this is where we get into legalese that I usually don't like to get into, but why don't, why don't we do it real quick? And then if I use jargon that I haven't explained, call me out on it and, and we'll get there. From a legal perspective, a contract is formed when there is an offer, acceptance, and consideration. And an offer, in this case, would be like this offer letter. They're offering you employment, and the terms, the general terms of that employment is is written in that offer letter. If you sign the offer letter, that's generally the way you show that you accept the offer on those terms, right? So you sign that. And consideration is what we call an exchange of detriments, as in the detriment to their side is they're going to pay you money. The detriment to your side is you're going to offer your personal services. There's a there's a mutual exchange there, right? Mm-hmm. So when does this uh, contract become enforceable Technically, when there's offer, acceptance, and consideration. At the offer letter stage, can an attorney say, look, at that point in time, as soon as it's signed, it is enforceable, and then entity, if you back out of it, hospital, if you back out of it, I have damages, and I'm going to sue you to enforce the contract. Uh, That's what lawyers are for. They will definitely make that argument. Is it as solid as if you actually had a an employment agreement that has all of the terms and conditions spelled out in a more formal way, I mean, it's less solid than having the employment agreement. 
employment agreement is definitely more solid. That's the contract, right? That's the contract you're for sure going to be able to sue on. But I've definitely seen lawyers sue on on the basis of an offer letter too and saying, look, that's just as binding. Mm. And sometimes they win, sometimes they lose. Harder part is damages and attorney's fees. Because if you're paying a lawyer to sue on a contract, you're paying that lawyer by the hour to sue on that contract. Mm. Unless you're lucky to find somebody who's willing to take it on a contingency fee basis, which means you pay nothing up front. And if you win, the lawyer takes a percentage. Mm. So Interesting. we've heard horror stories, especially with COVID, that people who had job offers had them rescinded when COVID happened. Mm -hmm. Is this yep. what we're talking about here and that your best shot is, well, we had the offer letter and suing on um, based on that offer letter? That's what we're talking okay. about. Yes. Is it, is it a good suit to sue on? Probably not, right? Because generally speaking, that organization will have something in that offer letter that, that gives them an out, mm. right? It'll say, this is a contingent offer letter, or this is a contingent offer, and it's, it's contingent on X, Y, and Z conditions, right? We don't know exactly what business conditions are going to be like next year when we want to bring you on board, so it's contingent on things being the same. So that entity will have a lawyer on their side making sure that kind of language is there. Got it. So that's standard, like, so on the flip side, that's standard, like, legal language to have things like you know, contingencies and, and such. That doesn't mean it's like, it's not a negative for us to see that in our offer letter. That should just be standard. It is not. Again. Cool. It is totally standard. So let's talk right. about negotiating, if you don't mind me switching topics here. So I I don't know if I should admit this, but I totally binge watched uh, pretty much all of Suits when COVID hit. <laughs> and so my idea of negotiations going into this was like terrifying because I'm not I mean I'm a little sassy but I'm not like super confrontational unless I have to be and I so I thought you're gonna be in this room where people are just grilling each other and yeah it turns out it's more of a conversation or I assume it should be more of a conversation and that if it was antagonistic, that would probably be a red flag. Is that true? It is very true. So let, let's back up a bit and talk about this relationship again. When you form this first employment relationship, right, this isn't a regular job. You are now a professional. You're talking about your career. It's, it's not, you know, a job you had in high school uh, just to make a little extra money. This is a long-term relationship that will be a significant relationship in your life. It might it might outlast your marriage or possibly two marriages, Aww. right? You should actually come into this thinking. I know, I'm so cynical. You should come into this thinking that, look, um, these people are going to be people that are significant in my life for a very long period of time. And... If you go into it with that kind of mindset, you know, do you really want it to be adversarial from the start? No, that's not good for anybody, right? You want to have a good relationship. And, and at the end of the day, you know, you're, you're dealing with people. If you come to the table, you know, with an unreasonable request for what you want, how is the other side going to respond? They're going to say, oh, well, 
guess this isn't going to work out. We didn't reach an agreement. See ya. We'll pick the next person on our list. Phew, dodged a bullet there. All right. So what you want to do is always, always make sure that you are honest about what you want and, and you know what you want. Um, when you do that negotiation, you should do it with a mindset that you're trying to get to a place where both sides are really comfortable with what they're getting. The more you push just your side and just your interests, the more the other person is going to think, oh, they don't really care about me. Do I really want to be in a long-term relationship with this person if they obviously don't care about me? Hmm, maybe not. So, you know, I think a lot of the uncomfortableness that we have going into thinking about negotiation, it's not only, you know, the image that it has to be confrontational, but also how, how can we know if a contract is fair? You know, especially if we don't really know what the business environment looks like in wherever we're, you know, trying to find a job or like what, you know, even what's like a reason bound vacation time, et cetera. So I don't know if you have any tips on how to know if a contract is fair, like how much we should be negotiating on that contract, or if you have tips on how to find out if, if it's fair or not. That is such a great question. And actually it does come up a lot because there is this conception that, oh, you know, my lawyer is there to make sure that I get a fair deal. The unfortunate news is that that is actually not what your lawyer is there mm -hmm. for. Your lawyer is trained to uh, read the law, interpret the law, explain the law. Like that's what law school is for. Your lawyer is not an economist. Mm -hmm. They're not a labor economist. They're not a compensation analyst. Like that is just not your lawyer's skill set. Your lawyer has no idea <laughs> how much uh, you're supposed to make in salary or as, as compared to the market because that's not what they do. Mm -hmm. Now, that said, once in a while, you might have a lawyer who came to the law as a second career or third career, and in their past career, they were a labor economist or they were a compensation analyst. Like I happened to be able to do that because I came from a background in HR and I had to do compensation surveys and I had to do compensation studies. So I know how to do it. I'm a lot really rusty at it. I'm I know enough to be dangerous and I would never say you should rely on me to do this. No, you should rely on an actual comp study. But your lawyer doesn't know. What your lawyer cares about is getting you the deal you want. So in the breakdown of like whose job is it to do what, it is your job as the client to know what you want and communicate what you want to your lawyer. It's your lawyer's job to help you get what you want to the maximum extent possible. And from the lawyer's perspective, whether what you want is fair uh, in light of what other people get, not your lawyer's concern. If you're happy because you got what you wanted, your lawyer is happy. Awesome. That is extremely informative of uh, what we should expect. Do you know if employers usually expect us to negotiate? Like, is that something they expect to see? I think it's another bit of anxiety with this. Will some employers think it's rude that we're trying to negotiate on a contract? No employer will think that's rude. It feels like it they is might. so <laughs> common. Yeah, it's like, just like, oh, but could I have some more? I don't know if it's because we have such a hierarchical system that it feels weird to ask someone in a position of power for something. You are in a position of power. They picked you as their number one. 
it is entirely possible you are also the only person, which actually works out better for you (laughs) if that was the case. But they picked you and they want you and they want to do what they can to make you happy so that you come on board. So what exactly is negotiable? Everything except the parties. The parties are not negotiable. Uh, Parties being you and them. Everything else? on the table for discussion, but you have varying degrees of success depending on what it is that you want to negotiate. So I would imagine like in big hospital systems where they have like pretty standard benefits package for the entire system, that's, there's less room to negotiate there because that would be out of maybe our direct employer's hands, but there are other things within it, like how our practice is set up or our time is split up that we have better opportunity to negotiate on? Is that kind of a, the general idea? Kind of. So you're on, you're on to something there. Could you, let's say that the, the, the health insurance benefits that your employer offers is, uh, is Kaiser. And, and you say, well, I don't like Kaiser. I want, I want Blue Cross. Um, yeah, your employer is probably going to say no because I, I don't have a relationship with Blue Cross. <laughs> I can't give you Blue Cross. I don't I don't have that. I don't have that as an option. But let's say alternatively, they offer you Kaiser and they say, you know, what we pay is 100% of the premium for you as the employee. And then if you want to bring on your your family members, then you pay 50% and we'll pay 50%. Could you possibly negotiate, okay, I'm on Kaiser and I want you to pay 75% of the premium for my family if I bring them on or 100% of the premium for my family if I bring them on. That's negotiable. Now, they may or may not do it. They might say, well, under our our compensation plan and X, Y, and Z, like we, we just can't do that for you, but could you ask for it? Sure. And this is something else to keep in mind as a difference from state to state. Oregon has a pay equity law in place already that says, look, employers, you need to treat people who perform work of comparable character comparably when it comes to compensation. So that can work for you and against you. It can work for you in the sense that assuming your employer is following the law, the deal you get should be very similar, very comparable to anybody else who's kind of in your same situation, like a newer doctor with their first contract, then yes, it should be roughly the same. Can it work against you where if you otherwise would have been able to negotiate something better, they can come back and say, actually, you know, we're pay equity compliant. We can't give you this extra because then all these other people who don't have the extra, that would not be equitable for them. So it cuts both ways. Is that interesting? So, so does some of that have to become public? You know, like you know, let's pretend you know I, I'm doing like retina that I look for a retina job, and there's like four other people at that hospital that do retina too. Uh, does that mean that if it's in a state with these this type of equity laws that they have to offer, like you know, if they say, oh, we pay you this much because everyone else is getting paid that much, is that something they have to offer to us? Because I my impression was I was generally like hidden knowledge. They do not have to proactively tell you, although I'll, I'll tell you that if you're, let's say in Oregon and you're dealing with a, a public entity employer, that's public information anyway. Mm. So mm. You, you'd be able to get access to that information anyway. And in Oregon, uh, 
there is a specific ban on employers from telling their employees you can't tell each other how much you make. Like employees absolutely can talk to each other about how much they make. They have the absolute right to do that. So if you knew somebody who worked there who felt comfortable talking to you about their pay, they don't have to, but they can if they want to, um, you could get that sense. The employer is not required to disclose that to you if you ask, and they probably will decline to disclose that to you if you ask. But if you talk to other people who work there, that's fine. Interesting. And then are there common pitfalls or like common like reasonable requests that you've seen in the negotiation process that maybe we should be aware of? Oh, so the, the one thing that I find to be the least negotiable out of anything else in the agreement is the non-competition agreement. And there will be either a separate agreement or a clause in the contract that says, look, if you work for us, one of the things you agree to is for a certain period of time after you leave, either you leave or we fire you, whatever the case is, the employment relationship separates. And for a certain period of time after that, you agree that you are not going to compete against us um, in a certain area. So that that's that non-compete. And, and somebody will see that and think, oh, well, they're going to stop me from working. Yes, that is what they're trying to do. They are trying to stop you from working for a period of time within, within a certain geographic scope because they don't want you to come in and get to know all, all of their clients and then steal them and then steal some of their employees with you. Mm-hmm. Um, that's really tough from the business perspective. If you imagine fast forward 20 years later into your future, you've built a thriving practice. You really gave up a lot in order to build that practice. And then somebody new comes in, you take them under your wing. And then two years later, they leave and take half of your practice and half of your employees with you. That's a pretty terrible situation for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what that non-competition agreement is there to protect against. It's to, it's to help that person who has built that practice keep their practice to the greatest extent possible. So what are the reasonable things to, what might be reasonable things to ask for? Like, especially if you feel, I mean, COVID times are difficult and a lot of places have had pay cuts. If it's uncomfortable to ask for more monetary compensation, is it fair to ask for more vacation or things like that? Absolutely. So, and really, if the thing that is most difficult to ask for is any wiggle room in in non-competition, more compensation should be a really comfortable thing to ask for. Like that's, that is expected from the employer standpoint, right? From the business standpoint, you generally expect that that person's going to ask you for more money. Not everybody does. Um, but if it's a reasonable ask for more money, um, it's totally expected. So let me give you an example. Let's say the offer that you have on the table is $200,000 a year. If you come back and you say, I want $300,000 a year, that is completely unreasonable. Forget about it. Your lawyer should be telling you, no, (laughs) do not do that. You're going to blow up your relationship. (laughs) But if if you come back to the table and you say, hey, look, you know, I'm, I'm, kind of looking at the compensation studies that I that I did and I've talked to a few other people and this is kind of the standard in the market and also um, given the current 
economic situation and how I'm I'm willing to agree to these other terms. You know, is there is an area way that you could maybe increase this offer to something like 220? Yeah, I think that's in the ballpark. You're probably not going to get 220. You might get 210, 215 or flat out. Well, no, sorry, we can't do that. But you're not going to blow up your deal. Mm -hmm. uh, vacation, also something on the table. So let's say you you ask for more money and they say i'm sorry we really can't do that it's got to be this much you could totally ask well is there any way that i could get maybe a higher accrual or uh, a lump sum of you know 10 days of pto in, in my bank when i start or after 30 days or could i get some extra emergency leave or could i get a little uh would you be willing to pay for my parking pass you know there are other things that you can kind of add in there to, to make that deal a little sweeter for you. For some people, if what they want is to attend a certain major conferences that they otherwise wouldn't be able to and isn't already part of the contract, that's something that you could negotiate. And especially things where it it's not income to you or the business. So this is where talking to an accountant can also be helpful, right? Yeah. It's less costly for the business to say yes to something if they don't need to pay taxes on it, if they don't need to pay payroll taxes on it. Salary, you get some of a pushback because on the salary, your employer is paying payroll taxes on those salary dollars that they're paying to you. And on top of that, there's going to be this risk that, okay, well, every year this person's going to expect a raise. And so if I start at X, it's going to go up a lot faster than if I start at Y. Benefits is a little bit different. Right. So you could ask for things like, hey, can I get a little bit more in my relocation expense reimbursement? Could I could I get a gym membership? Could I get you know, a few other things? Could I get uh, what is it? Is it legal Zoom or whatever it is, a subscription? To that? Um, those kinds <laughs> of things. Legal Zoom? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't you might get divorced. Oh, my gosh. Oh, wow. This is like. <laughs> You this are like cloud divorce. <laughs> I would like rent, to point so. out that like, you are happily married, and maybe I should talk to uh, your spouse about this. <laughs> yeah. Hey, she was a family law attorney. Yeah. True, she Just was. Saying. <laughs> so yeah, the other things that might make it make it a little sweeter for you, it's all on the table to talk about. Just to double back on this, you've mentioned things like compensation surveys before. Are those like normal things that people looking for? jobs do and like what does that look like you know i think for for us in medicine you know i haven't heard of people like individuals doing that there's things like medscape surveys and stuff that are on the internet but from what i've heard those are often pretty unreliable so is that something that like you know um, people looking for employment typically do no uh -huh. most individuals don't even know that this exists yeah, me too. yeah um, i didn't know until now. i know about it because i was in hr and that and we would do that we there are companies that you can hire to do compensation surveys and they are very good hmm. but you have to pay them for that information right mm -hmm. and that's why individuals usually don't is because it can get very expensive so that's more something like a business might do if they're like like you know a large organization or something Absolutely. Right. If you're if you're a business, even if you're not a large organization, even if you're a small organization, but you're having a really hard time recruiting and retaining good talent, you might hire a company to do a compensation study so that you can find out where where am I at in respect to my competitors? Mm. 
right? If, am I just not paying enough? Is it my is it my benefits package? Like, what's the problem? Why am I having this issue? And sometimes the comp study will come back and you'll find out, oh, it's because I'm paying 20% less than all my competitors. Well, then maybe I need to increase my pay. Or sometimes it'll come back and it'll, you'll find out, oh, I'm a market leader. I'm paying 25% more and I'm still having this problem. It's probably my managers. My managers are probably tyrants. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's circle back a little bit to these uh, non-compete agreements that you alluded to that are very difficult to negotiate. Is there a uniform time limit to them? Like, how do I know if it's like, two years versus one year versus three years, like, is there like a reasonable time limit across the industry or other ways that we can know if it's fair? This is such a good question. So I want to put on my legal geek hat again. Non-compete agreements are creatures of state law, which means whether they can exist and to what degree they can exist will vary from state to state. So for example, in California, it's just unconstitutional. Under the California Constitution, can't have them. Huh. Done. Right? In Oregon, uh, yes, you can have them, but they are not favored in the law. The legislature just hates these things. And, and so they, they've created a lot of hurdles for employers to have to jump over in order to have an enforceable one. And they've already said in, in the law itself that, look, not only do you have these hurdles on, on who you can require to sign a non-compete and how you have to structure it, how you have to notify them, how much time you have in advance that you have to notify them, the fact that you have to notify them in writing, and this person has to make such and such amount of money. Like there are a lot of, lot of things the employer has to do to get a solid non-compete. On top of that, the law says, and it can't be longer than 18 months after termination. Um, and on top of that, there's case law that talks about, okay, and the scope, the geographic scope has to be reasonable. And the test is reasonableness, right? So you're, the non-compete shouldn't say you can't work anywhere in the world uh, within 18 months, right? That is not... Like start my moon practice, yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> not going to be reasonable. It's not going to be upheld if you're talking about an Oregon court. Um, but outside of Oregon, could it be different in another state? In another state, could it be three years, five years, 10 years? You know, the entire United States as, as the geographic scope, it is less likely, like the broader it is, the less likely it is that a court is going to uphold it. But the test itself, it's not a bright line test. It's one of reasonableness. And then the parties end up arguing over, is this reasonable or is it not reasonable? And they have to give pretty solid reasons on why they think it is or isn't. You know, th this kind of brings you back to something I was wondering before. Like, let's say that I, um, you know, sign a contract and I don't listen to a man's advice and I don't get a lawyer to look at it. And I've been working there for three months. And then I think, wait, I don't even know, like, is some of this stuff that my contract even legal or is like, should I have negotiated this more? Do you often, or do you see people go to get lawyers after they sign? Is there any utility to that? Or like, should I just resign myself to being doomed to having no dental or whatever? Uh, usually I don't see people in that situation where 
where they have basically buyer's remorse, right? right? Uh, three months into it, they have some buyer's remorse. Uh, and that's usually because somebody's not willing to pay a lawyer unless their next move is actually just leaving. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, for, for most people, that just it just doesn't really make sense because they know that if they start bringing this up again, you know, you are causing a rift right. in this relationship. The other side is like, well, wh what do you mean? We just talked about this three months ago and, and you're not happy? Why? Uh, it is kind of difficult. So we really should do our due diligence, like, you know, before like anything, like it's hard to take backseat anything. It's pretty tough. Yeah. Now, what you could do is the next year. So you, you get a year under your belt and they present you with your, your next annual contract at that point in time. Yes. Go ahead and, and negotiate and, and try again. Right. Cause then you have some credibility. You've got a year under your belt. You've proven yourself as, as a good employee, somebody that they want to keep. They feel good about their initial decision to hire you to begin with. They want to give you a second contract for this next year. Absolutely. Anytime your employer presents you with another contract or a renewal, they're picking you again. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like the offer letter stage again, right? They're, except this time you, you already have the relationship and you definitely can say, hey, you know, I've done these things. I've contributed in these ways. I've gone above and beyond. My performance review says X, Y, Z. Could I maybe get a little extra here? And that's totally reasonable. So what happens if you Google your own state laws and find out that that doesn't match what's in the contract? Like, can they still enforce what you signed in the contract? Are you talking about non-competes or contracts generally? Sorry, for the uh, non-competes. So let's say that the non-compete was longer than what, like you signed already. And you said, okay, I'm happy with this. And then you find out later, like, oh my goodness, that non-compete doesn't match what was in my state. Like, is that still enforceable? Depends on the state. So California? No. Because you couldn't have one there anyway. It's unconstitutional. And they're going to have a really hard time trying to enforce that. That's not going to go anywhere. Oregon, maybe. Maybe. So uh, in Oregon, at this point in time, it can always change. It, a a non-compete agreement that doesn't meet all the terms of the statute is voidable, not void. Void means it's totally unenforceable from the get-go. Voidable means the party that you're trying to enforce against can take proactive steps to void it so that it can't be enforced against them to that degree, to the extent that it, it goes outside of the, the statutory requirement. But every state is going to be different about that. So you definitely need an attorney at that point. If you're trying to challenge your non-compete, get an attorney involved with that because it is going to be different and it is case by case. So this isn't a non-compete question, but it's something that's become at least, uh, you know, I definitely know within retina, there's been anxiety about it. And I think within ophthalmology in general, the uh, idea of private equity. So, you know, we didn't talk about this off the air or anything. So just to kind of briefly introduce the idea that as best as I understand it, there's a, been a trend within ophthalmology, generally private practices in the United States that private equity firms have started to buy them to get ownership. And you know, whereas, you know, previously the trend were, was for practice to be owned by the physicians. It's caused a lot of anxiety amongst 
um, some trainees because the idea is, well, the, the concern is that, you know, while senior partners at some of these private equity firms, and I'm painting very broad strokes here, there's some I'm sure that are very fair, but in some cases, the senior partners may have gotten a nice payout when private equity bought their firm. But in exchange for them working for under a salary as opposed to as partners and, you know, maybe not maybe not doing as well after they got their initial payout, but that it's possible for junior employees, you know, uh, who are, you know, fresher out of training may kind of get a raw end of the stick in terms of, you know, never being able to get partner track or, you know, maybe getting lower compensation than they initially um, would have gotten. And again, this is this is just tales from the interview trail that I've heard. I know of, well, I've heard of some people who, you know, signed um, a contract with some practice and they were verbally told, oh, you know, we're not going to sell the private equity. Like that's not just going to, that's just not going to happen. We intend to continue to own our practice. And then a year into that person working at the practice or they, um, they sell the private equity. And now they are, you know, their employment terms may have changed. So, you know, I don't know if you've seen something like that in other fields, like this kind of trend. And um, if you have any thoughts on ways, to, you know, for us to kind of protect ourselves, um, you know, is, is it reasonable, for example, to put in a clause in your contract that if the practice sells to some type of private equity firm that we are allowed to like, you know, if it's a three-year contract to leave our contract early, is, are things like that reasonable or, or what other thoughts you have on that? You can definitely negotiate that right? Um, That's on the table as a topic for negotiation. Are you going to get it? Probably not. It's very, it's very unlikely that you're going to be able to be successful in that negotiation to get the other side to say, all right, well, if this happens, then not only can you leave your contract, but you, we're going to release you from your non-compete so that you can go somewhere else and and continue working uh, straight away. And, and the reason for that is on the business side of things, if you're the person who's thinking about selling to private equity because this is your strategy for retirement or whatever it is, mm-hmm. uh, it's the other side that you're selling to, they're going to do their due diligence on whether or not they want to buy your practice. And one of the things they're going to look at is, all right, well, what are the chances that if I buy your practice, it's going to be just as successful as you've told me it has been in, in these last five or 10 years? Because that's that's why I'm buying in. This We're negotiating about the price of how much I'm going to pay as private equity for your practice. And if you want me to pay that much, I need some assurance that, yeah, your, your clientele is going to be roughly the same. Your revenues are going to be roughly the same. Your physicians are going to be roughly the same. Like, I need to know it's it's mostly status quo so that it's worth me buying this practice. And in that situation, if you gave that up as as the senior partner, right? If you said, all right, well, I already told my my junior uh, associates who are, who are working for me that if I were to sell, they can leave. It's not going to be a problem. I'm not going to be able to negotiate a good price for my practice. It's going to be really tough. So it's hard to imagine that the that the employer would be willing to do that for you. Can you raise it? Sure. And your level of success will really uh, be dependent on, you know, one, how much do they need you? Like that's always number one. If they need you because you are the only person that has applied for this position in three years and they have a desperate need to have some anybody, anybody with a license fill this job, yeah you might be a lot more successful. 
But if you're going to a market where there are lo- where there's lots of competition, from the employer's standpoint, it's giving up too much to say yes to that ask. They might just come back and say, you know, I'm really sorry. That's just not something that we could do, or that's not our policy. We, we've been advised by council to stick with our standard terms, right? Whatever it is, they'll say it really nice, but the answer might be just, no, I'm, I'm sorry. We can't do that. And then that's your risk. Got it. And, you know, I do want to, um, if I didn't disclaim it well enough before that, you know, I definitely, I'm personally not well educated on how private equity works. And I know a lot of my peers are looking for jobs at this moment. And, you know, I'm sure every situation is different and there are, you know, some firms that are great to work with. I'm sure there's some firms that aren't as uh, either, but I figured we just use this opportunity to ask um, uh, about that. So thanks for that answer. Uh, and do you want to do the yeah. multiple jobs? So cool. um, I feel like entering, how do I put it? Starting to look for jobs has felt very much like starting up on Tinder, where I don't quite understand the rules <laughs> and what their expectations are. And is it okay that I'm talking to multiple people? I don't know. Do they expect me to? Like, uh, I mean, Mandy, Yeah. when did you start up Tinder? I mean, med school. But I am happily married, just to We'd love to hear. We should do a whole episode on how to Tinder from uh, from. (laughs) I don't think I'm the best example. (laughs) (laughs) I did not end up meeting my husband on Tinder, so. Um, But I I had this like anxiety about how do I go about talking about this, and do they know I'm talking to other places, and is that okay? Do I mention it? Do I not mention it? Like, how do? What is the culture around this? Sure. So I'm going to take back, take you back to HR days, right? So when I was an HR manager and I put out a job posting and I got a, a stack of people applying for this job that I, that I put out, I have zero expectation that the person who applied for my job didn't also apply for other jobs. Like that would be really weird. Why would somebody looking for a job only apply for my job and nobody else's jobs either? So from that perspective, you don't need to worry about, oh, you know, cheating on a potential future employer. They fully expect that you as a job seeker are seeking jobs from multiple different organizations. Okay. And then when you're talking to them, do you mention anything about that? Or is it kind of like the elephant in the room and we're like, we know we're all dating, but we don't talk about it. And what happens if someone gives you an offer letter? Do you need to disclose that to the other place? Sure. So I think it's really more of an elephant in the room to the applicant than to the employer. The employer fully expects that you as the applicant are applying for multiple different jobs and that you're interviewing for multiple different jobs. And the expectation from the employer side is, oh, if I've got somebody who's really good, right? I really like them. Then I better act fast, you know, you know, better put a ring on it. Um, Otherwise, somebody else is going to catch this person first. And that's what the employer is thinking. If they're talking to you and it's, you know, it's going okay. It's not, you know, fantastic. And they're, they're not feeling like, okay, I have to, I have to go really, really fast and make sure that I get this person because this is the best person. And I'm not going to, there's no even 
a close second, um, then yeah, maybe the employer doesn't move so fast and they're okay if, if you go in and get a job somewhere else. Now, let's say that you're in these negotiations or you're in talks, basically, you're networking, you're interviewing, and you have uh, three or four different potential opportunities where you've applied and you're at various stages of the interview process. And then one of them comes through and they, and they offer you a job. Do you then need to go back and tell the other three employers, oh, just so you know, I got an offer. No, you don't have to do that. Um, if, if you sign the offer that you got, then they just kind of missed out basically. And the next time that they contact you, you can say, oh, hey, thank you so much. I really appreciated our discussions. Um, I did get an offer and I, and it was a really good offer. I couldn't, I couldn't pass it up. And, and that's it. You left it. It's, it's positive. They totally expect that that can happen if they don't move fast enough. Uh, not a big deal. But could you uh, take the offer that you got? And let's say it's not all that great of an offer and you're trying to negotiate and you're not really getting anywhere. And actually they weren't your first pick anyway. Um, you're still waiting to hear back from one or two of the other opportunities that you have because they were your first pick. At that point, to try to maybe nudge them along a little further, could you mention, oh, hey, I, I just wanted to let you know, I got an offer. Um, I have until such and such date to, to make a decision. Um, it's a pretty good offer, but I, I really like your practice. And I feel like we, we get along really well. The opportunity is, is maybe a little bit better. Um, I see more potential here. Whatever the positive thing is that makes them your number one choice. Tell them, right? Everybody loves to hear flattering things about themselves. So tell them what it is that you like about them and ask them, you know, is there any chance that maybe we'd be able to move forward? And they'll get that, they'll get the hint of, you know, what's going on, that if they don't move, they're going to lose you. And maybe they might say, yeah, you know, now's just not good timing for us. Or maybe they'll say, you know, hold on, let me see what I can do. I'll get right back to you. You know, when you say flattering things to Ben, he gets really embarrassed and he turns red. Let's go to the next question. <laughs> ben, you are so good at hosting this podcast. Oh, okay, so the next question that we have on this podcast is what, okay, we're going to finish things up now before I die. What questions do you think or do you wish that every prospective employee should ask? Ooh, I think every prospective employee should get enough information about what this job is going to be like and what the relationship is going to be like in, in the long term to make a good decision. So up front, a lot of people think about pay, they think about benefits, they think about the location. And I think, you know, for, for your industry, you're thinking about call structure and things like that. Um, what I like to ask, just generally speaking, when, I, when I'm interviewing uh, as an employee or as an applicant, is I like to ask my interviewer, what are the two or three things that you like most about working here? And what are two or three things that if you could change right now, just you know, snap your fingers and it would be changed in the organization, what would you change? 
because that gives me some insight into what's the dynamic in, in that work environment. Um, as, as an attorney, I now know uh, that it's important for me specifically that I want to know if this employer I, I'm about to get into this relationship with has been sued for malpractice. Uh, and, and what those details were, <laughs> but I don't have to ask the employer that I can look it up myself, right? That's pretty palsy. So how much has you been? Just <laughs> a first question. Oh. I would like to know if my colleagues have had ethical complaints that, that, you know, have real ramifications for me and, and the reputation of this, of this practice. So I would go and look that up separately, right? I wouldn't necessarily ask hmm. that. It's something we could do too, actually. That's very yeah. interesting. I never thought about that, but yes. Yeah. It's your work environment, right? This is what you're going to have to deal with. Sometimes it's appropriate to ask, hey, would it be possible for me to sit down and uh, have coffee, non so non-COVID times, uh, have coffee with uh, the somebody that might be one of my peers? So you can talk to them and get their perspective on what the work environment is like. But for me personally, work environment is really important. Like I want to know if there's somebody in that practice that is a total jerk and is really difficult to work with because that means I'm going to have to work with this person if I join this practice. Yeah. And there are a lot of personalities in medicine. Yeah. No right. Kidding. These are also probably good fellowship interview tips too, actually, for people who are applying to fellowships now. So keep those in mind. I have... If you don't have anything else, then I have one final question mm -hmm. for you, Heidi. So all this stuff, all this contract negotiation, negotiation, whatever, it gives me anxiety because it's just not the kind of person I am. I'm like, why can't we all be friends? Let's all just get along. But you seem to enjoy this a ton. You cackle and enjoy everything. So why do you enjoy <laughs> contract negotiation so much? What's not to enjoy? Don't you enjoy playing matchmaker for your friends? I do, like, but I failed every time miserably. Don't just don't even ask my best friend what happened last time. We have a lot to explore here. This episode, this is wonderful. Keep going, please. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, that's all it is. Is you're you're setting up. Hopefully, if it, if it's done well and it's done right, you're setting up two people who have a need to to match with each other for success, right? That that's the ultimate goal. And, you know, for for the attorney, yes, I have my client, I'm interested in my client's best interests, not necessarily the opposing side's best interests, but in this type of relationship, a win-win is is really the goal. And if at the end of the day, I know that for my client, they got their dream job and that they worked so hard for that they went to school and and went through residency for which is i just i can't say enough how much i respect how how you all do what you do uh it is so much harder to become a doctor than it is to become a lawyer but if i could <laughs> just do my little part right and help somebody who's worked so hard get their dream job in the place they want, with the terms that they want, where they're happy and they're contributing to the community that I care about, that's pretty awesome. Like what, I don't know what they're, what isn't to like about doing that kind of work. It's such like a pleasant outlook on like. You're changing the way we think you know, of I lawyers. Think, 
I, I know, yeah. Like even just negotiation, you know, I've you know up to this point thought of it so antagonistically. Like even you know in my dating process, you know, when my like wife started dating me, I was like, ha, you sucker, I win. <laughs> <laughs> that, that probably was not the right attitude to take. Well, to it that. worked, so, I guess. <laughs> I guess, yeah, I, I guess, but you know, it could have been a little bit healthier. Thanks for that, like life perspective. Anytime. <laughs> I hope Faye listens to this. <laughs> Yeah, no, I'm not going to. Well, actually, this really applies to like any doctor. Anyways, um, thank you so much for your time. I think, so how does how does billing work? If you go like an hour, totally random number, an hour, 12 minutes and 43 seconds, um, <laughs> do you bill for two hours for for that time? Or is it like like a, like a fractional for the hour? That is a really good question. Every attorney does it a little bit different. So like at my uh-huh. firm, I bill for every two-tenths of an hour. So in this case... An hour and 12 minutes and 13 seconds counts as 1.4 hours. Mandy, okay. I'll send you a bill. Yeah, I was. Uh, okay, I'll send you I my was, child. When we got to like minute, you know, 58, I was like, man, we got to. We're like about to just go over to hold another hour. We got to hurry this up. But okay. Well, yeah, you could edit it that. so it's at twice the speed and then somehow we can argue. Uh, I don't think I would right. argue. We'll take that to court. Okay. You're yeah, going to have exactly. to hire a lawyer for when that. You, when you send me your audio <laughs> file, please delete your original file. Just, you know, no reason. <laughs> no reason. So if you um, enjoy this episode and want to thank Heidi for coming on and doing many hundreds of dollars of hours of work uh, <laughs> for for, uh, for the greater ophthalmology community, then, you know, you can um, leave messages on our uh, Twitter at eyes 4 years number four, and we'll pass those along to Heidi. Or, you know, you can go whatever you know medium you want leave it in the comments that if you appreciate her time or you want more episodes that are like this that if you think we're made of money to <laughs> to ask her more questions about other uh, other things that she may have expertise in otherwise we'll see you next week and thanks everyone for their time thank you thanks everyone it was a pleasure <laughs>